I'm thankful to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to um, John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3. And we're going to we're going to read the first eight verses again. I say again, we were here last week and we're going to be here one more time this week. Gospel of John chapter three, starting in verse one. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit." And so we looked at this passage last week and we tried to look at it in the context of John, um, really John 2, 23, 24, and then on down um, through uh, 3, 8. Um, and, and what's happening here is John is setting up the, the, the gospel or what's coming next as far as these narratives go is there's going to be a, a couple of scenes of a comparison contrast between those who, John 2.23, believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did, but Jesus did not commit Himself unto them. That is, they believed Jesus, Jesus did not believe them. Um, and, And so we see this one with Nicodemus. This one who comes and acknowledges, Lord, we know nobody can do these things unless they came... From God, Jesus would later on, this is where we'll be probably next week, um, in a couple of verses, he would say, uh, if you don't receive these earthly things, how will you receive the heavenly things that I'm talking about? The implication there is, while Nicodemus came recognizing that Jesus was doing some miraculous things, he was not receiving the things that Christ was uh, teaching or he wasn't receiving Christ for who he was, we'll, we'll zero in on that more next time. But Jesus says something to him here, something that's a familiar phrase. If you've read Scripture very long, if you've gone to church very long, you've heard the phrase, Jesus says, you must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And what we're talking about here, what Jesus is talking about here, is is an individual who's brought into the kingdom through the new birth of the Spirit of God. And so when we look at Scripture, uh, we see 
several descriptions of what it means. What does it mean for someone to be born again? What does it mean for regeneration to happen? We see several scriptures. We're going to look at four or five of them this morning that give us a, uh, an understanding, give us different uh, angles. Aren't really, it's not really the right word. Dimensions would be a better word. Dimensions on what are we talking about when we're talking about regeneration? Um, it's, it's more than just one thing happening. Uh, the Spirit comes and gives life and brings illumination and, and starts to convict and starts to sanctify and starts to all kinds of things. And so what are we talking about? What happens whenever, whenever regeneration occurs in the life of a believer? Well, one thing that we know is for sure, Jesus says, unless this happens, Whatever it is at this point, if you were here last week, you've got a good idea. We talked about it a little. Unless this happens, nothing else can happen from a spiritual standpoint. You can't see the kingdom. Now, remember, Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. He's a man of the Sadducees. So he was a guy who religiously was as holy as you could get. He was a guy who knew the Old Testament inside and out. And yet Jesus says, you are, uh, he's, we'll see this again next week, but you're, you're a teacher in Israel. You're, you're one of the ones who have mastered the law. You, you, uh, people come to you and you teach them. And, and essentially Jesus says, and yet you, you have no understanding. And the reason you have no understanding is because you haven't been born again. It's something that must happen for you to go from darkness to light, from death to life and, We'll see a few more illustrations here, more descriptions here. So what does it mean? What does it mean for someone to be regenerate? What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to work in someone's heart and life? Well, the first place we'll go is uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Okay? You know this passage probably. Ephesians chapter 2. We look briefly or read briefly. Here last week, I want to look a little closer this week. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, 
we really have one central teaching that's sort of expanded and, and, uh, the outworkings of this teaching is, uh, uh, is, is applied as, I guess, as we make our way down through verse uh, 10. But the teaching is this. For every single individual who has been uh, brought to a place to know Jesus Christ, who has been brought into relationship with God through Him, we, we all started out in the same place. And that is, we all started out dead. Okay? Spiritually dead. And so when we're thinking about regeneration, um, fundamentally, at least from this passage, we're talking about someone who's being brought from death to life. Someone who was, spiritually speaking, dead as it relates to God. So we want to talk about that for a minute. Um, look in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sinner entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Romans chapter 5 here is talking about Adam, talking about the fact that when Adam sinned, humanity, well, when Adam sinned and Adam fell in the garden and death was brought into the world, that we all died in Adam. That is, uh, humanity. We were, we all are, um, under the curse of sin that Adam brought into the world. And so whenever you and I are born and when our children and grandchildren are born, um, we are all born into this world dead in Adam okay, as a representative. So, But the question is, what does that even mean? Dead in what way? Right? How can someone who is living and breathing be dead? What sort of a death here are we referring to? And, and I think it's helpful if we contrast this understanding of death from a spiritual standpoint, if we contrast that with what it means to be alive. Okay? What is it to have, you know, the opposite of being spiritually dead is that Christ brings and gives us eternal life. So what does it mean to have eternal life? And Jesus really encapsulates that in John chapter 17. Verse 3, when he says, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true and living God. So to have life is to be brought into fellowship and to know in a relational way, in a real way, to know the living God and to be known of the living God. So what does it mean to be dead spiritually? Well, Fundamentally, it means when we're thinking about know in John 17, what it means to know God, it means that you're brought into a relationship with him as an experiential knowledge. Been reconciled with him to be dead in sin 
means there's a separation between you and God. The relationship that you have is not the relationship that you want. It's not even a relationship that you're aware of. You don't know Him from the standpoint that you have fellowship with Him, that you walk with Him, that you love Him, that you love the things that He loves. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what we were talking about this morning in Psalm 92, verse 6. There's a brutish beast who just doesn't know. Again, looks around at the world that is so incredible, that's that's uh, amazing in a million different ways, and never comes to the conclusion that someone must have created all this. I heard R.C. Sproul one time talk about just how amazing it is that you can look out on a landscape, particularly a, a, a the big a big forest. If you get a you know a bird's eye view, you have all these different trees and you have all these different shrubs and greeneries and this and that, and there can be a hundred different shades of green and not one clashes. Right? They all go together. Not one looks like it's at a place or looks like, man, that's not right. It all goes together. How in the world does that happen? Well, the mind and the heart that's dead to God says, just by chance. Right? It just happened. You know, I don't know how to explain it. It just did. So to be dead to God in many ways... If we're thinking about trying to contrast that, to be dead to God means that you uh, you live an existence that misses the obvious. What's what could be more obvious than we live in a world full of totally depraved sinners? G.K. Chesterton said that total depravity is the only doctrine in the Bible that you don't need the Bible to prove. All you need is a world full of people. You look at, you look at just the depraved things that mankind does. Not only are we talking about what, what people are capable of, but what people actively do. And again, all of those things are a result of our separation from God. Our separation from His hedge of protection. Our separation from a love for Him. Our separation of a desire to pursue Him. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there are none who seek after God. That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of this is what goes into what it means to be Dead to sin. Sometimes people can think about being dead to sin from, or dead in sin in some sort of a way as if we're just kind of neutral. Okay? That's not what it is. Okay? Someone who is alive to God is someone who sees the kingdom. It's someone who's entering into the kingdom. It's someone who's pursuing the kingdom. Someone who is dead to God but alive to sin we're not going to go to this one, but in Romans chapter 6, it talks about those who present their members as slaves to God and those who present their members as slaves to sin. Okay, This is the same sort of a thing. To be alive means that you're 
pursuing, you're engulfed with, you are uh, surrounded by, and you've placed yourself by that which you love and that which you know. So in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead. You were dead. You were, you were born this way. You've lived this way your whole life. You weren't aware of God. You were separated from God. You couldn't see your sin. You were immersed in your sin. You had no desire to seek God. You had no desire to know God. And brothers and sisters, by nature, that's where we all are. But what we see in John chapter 3 is that that can mean different things on a fruit level. According to Jesus, that's where Nicodemus is right here. But Nicodemus is not somebody that you would think is a, you know, a serial killer or a rapist or someone who's um, just indulging in what we would think of as gross sin. Nicodemus is someone who is trusting in his own holiness trusting in his own righteousness. He's trusting that he's a lot cleaner on the outside than most of the people that he knows. And so God must be pleased with him. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, it's impossible for you to see reality unless you become born again. You're dead to the reality that you're dead to God. And so Ephesians 2 tells us that you were dead. Look in, let's go back there. Um, really, uh, you can see, and you hath he quickened. The hath he quickened is, is in italics. That means that the translators inserted that to, uh, to maybe help the flow of the text. But if you were to just read it in the Greek, it would just say, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. That just simply means our manner of life was just like theirs. We thought like them. We lived like them. No one could tell us apart. By nature, we were just like them. But, verse 4, God who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He has loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has quickened. That word there means to make alive. He has made us alive, quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. He's raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what are we, what are we talking about here? What does it mean to be made alive? Well, the way that Paul describes it here in Ephesians chapter two is that we've been quickened together with Christ. That is, we've been united to Jesus Christ. And this quickening that we experience is something that happens whenever the, and we'll see this as we look at some of these other descriptions, is something that happens as the Spirit of God begins to indwell an individual and make us to become alive to these realities that we are united to Jesus Christ. We are with Him. We are in Him and He is in us. 
And we do not stand before God in our own righteousness. We have no righteousness to give to God. We stand before God in Christ, seated together in heavenly places with Him. We have an audience with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And whenever we're made alive to these kinds of realities, then that changes the way we view ourselves. That changes the way we view God. And that changes the way we view Christ. I mean, even we can see from, from here um, where the, the, the initial way that Nicodemus comes to Christ falls far short. He's not just a, he's not just a guy who works miracles. Okay? He's not just a guy who does signs. He's our everything. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our wisdom. He's our redemption. And we could go on and on and on. And so the question is, how in the world does a person come to believe that everything that they are and everything that they ever will be is wrapped up in one person? Well, the answer to that question is by being brought from death to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there, there are no arguments that I could give logically to talk you into that. Um, th- there are no debates that I could give to, to get you to, to come here and to embrace that. But the truth is, this morning, if you're a Christian, there was a time in your life when you were not, and then there was a time that uh, came along to where all of a sudden you began to embrace that which you rejected And that was because you were made alive through the Spirit of God. So regeneration, it's uh, it's the fact that we've been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about that um, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have become new. Okay, So we have new affections. We have new desires, new pursuits and We'll talk about that more whenever we look in Ezekiel 36. But what, what, what is it exactly that's, that's happening whenever regeneration occurs? Look in Galatians chapter 2. So we could take, and we'll try to remember to do this as we go down through these, we could take... You must be born again. And we could say it this way. You must be made alive. We're talking about the same things here. You must be made alive. You must be brought to spiritual life. For you cannot see. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, what I want to get here is is that beginning of verse 20, when he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. When someone is regenerate, when someone is made alive, it really is the life of Christ and the soul of man. 
Okay? It's, it's the Spirit of Christ. That is the Holy Spirit. Christ was indwelt without measure with the Spirit of God or with the Holy Spirit during His ministry here on, on earth. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes and brings us from death to life, then the life of Christ is at work in you. The Spirit of Christ is abiding, dwelling in you. It's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it? This is this is the uh, the the holy of holies, right? Two point right? the presence of God, the Spirit of God, taking up residence in your soul. It's incredible. Colossians 1, 25-29 would say it this way, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, It's the, the Spirit of Christ that's dwelling in you, that's residing in you, that's living in you, and that's working through you. So when we think about being born again from this standpoint, from being brought from death to life, then a couple of things are very clear. Number one, you cannot participate in this activity. Okay? This is a sovereign act of God. You've heard this before if you've heard anything about regeneration, but dead people can't do anything. Okay? You can't instruct a dead person to do anything. They can't make themselves more dead. They can't make themselves alive. They can't rearrange anything. They're dead. And so what happens from a spiritual standpoint is that God comes in and makes a dead soul, a dead heart. Whenever we're talking about heart and soul and mind, we're just talking about the inner man. All those things are pretty synonymous in Scripture. He takes this dead soul, this dead heart, and makes it alive through the power of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells in you. That's why, by the way, we're just, this is off subject a tad bit, but that's why that the church of the living God is such a unique place and God's presence dwells among His church in such a unique way. And that's because it's a collection of regenerate men and women who have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in their hearts, coming together in unity to offer up the sacrifice of praise through Him. It's really an incredible picture. Okay, Without the regenerating work of the Spirit, it's, it's just another crowd. There's, there's nothing special about it. So being made alive, you must be born again. You must be brought from death to life. And that happens through a sovereign work of God. There's no, no means, nothing can help do this. We talked about this a little bit last week, but um, uh, John would go out of his way in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 to talk about this. It's, it's not the will of the flesh or the will of man. Um, it's, 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 it's of God who freely gives. The Word can't do it. The preacher can't do it. The parent can't do it. It must be sovereignly done by the Spirit. 
That's why, by the way, this you've seen this before. That's why the same message or the same book can have a tremendous effect on one person and absolutely no effect on the person that sits right beside them. Why? It's not because somebody's smarter. It's not because of anything intrinsic as far as what that person's done for themselves. It's because the Spirit of God so made, being made alive. Being made alive. Second, look in uh, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that when we're talking about the different descriptions of regeneration in the Bible, that none of these are going to be different kinds of things. It's going to be different ways of saying or illustrating the same reality. And these different ways are going to be able to, are going to help us to be able to think in different, um, see different dimensions of what it is that's being said here. So Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It says, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, Ezekiel is writing this um, in the early uh, stages or in the early part of the Babylonian exile. And he's telling God's people that uh, there is hope. The Lord is going to do something. He is going to bring you back, but... This time, he's going to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is you. It's your heart. It's the fact that you, you, you have a heart that is full of idols. It's that your heart doesn't love God. You love yourself and you exalt yourself and you worship yourself. And God can bring you back from Babylon and put you back in Jerusalem, but it's the same problem in a different location. It doesn't fix anything. He's saying there's something deeper that needs to be addressed. Something deeper that needs to be addressed. And that something deeper that needs to be addressed is, is your heart. Now, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we talk about this often, especially while we're in the Psalms, but it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Guard your heart with all diligence. If you're going to be wise, Proverbs is just devoted to comparing, contrasting, and really celebrating the beauty of wisdom and the blessing of wisdom. But someone who would be wise is someone who's going to guard their heart. What does it mean to guard your heart? Well, your heart is the the control center of who you are. It's the seat of your affections. 
you you uh, value things in your heart. You perceive with your heart. You think through your heart. And again, we're not talking about the heart that pumps blood into your body. We're talking about the inner man. That's how that's what a Hebrew mind would have been thinking about whenever uh, the it's used this way. Uh, if you look in Proverbs and in uh, Psalms, uh, even in some of the prophets. Um, the, the bowels, the kidneys, the liver, all those things are used in a synonymous way. And it's just this, this inner man that's being referred to, immaterial. So why do you think the way that you think? Well, it's just a reflection of your heart. Why do you do the things that you do? It's just a reflection of your heart. James chapter 3 says, why in the world are all these wars and fightings among you? Well, it's because of the passions that are in your heart. It's because you want things and you can't have it. And so you kill and so forth and so on. And what Ezekiel's telling us here is that God is going to redeem His people. And when He redeems His people and He ushers in His kingdom, what's going to happen is He's going to give His people a new heart. You see, Romans 3 talks about this, but you know there was never anything wrong with the law. The law was fine. The law was good. But a good law with a bad heart doesn't amount to anything. You could give the best instruction. You could give the best education. You could give uh, the best encouragement and so forth and so on. But if all of that lands on a dead, stony heart, it doesn't amount to anything. And so Ezekiel says... God says through Ezekiel, I'm going to get at the root of this and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this fountain of life, Proverbs 4.23, this seed of affections, and I'm going to give you a heart transplant. Because the heart that you have by nature is a stony heart. The description there of it being stony is really just a description of it can't really be penetrated with, with the... The word, it can't really be penetrated with the affection outside of, uh, for God outside of just a bunch of rules and regulations and cleaning up the outer man and so forth and so on. It's hard to God. It's hard toward God. And it's, it's really the heart is busy manufacturing all kinds of other gods. Look in Ezekiel 14. This is before, obviously, Ezekiel says what he does in verse, I mean, in chapter 36. But it, it's no doubt setting up chapter 36. Ezekiel 14, this is an interaction between Ezekiel and some of the elders, it says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. 
that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. So here's the here's the problem, God says. These these men, these elders, the house of Israel, they come to me and they inquire of me, but they really don't want anything to do with me. Okay? They have set up these idols in their hearts. That is, they've set up these treasures. They've set up these things that that they they regard over and above me. And really, when it comes to rearranging their life and when it comes to making the sacrifices that need to be sacrificed and when it comes to where their affections really are and what it is that they treasure, it's not me. It's these other things that they've propped up in their heart. We could go through and talk about what many of those things could be, right? Status, comfort, ease, appearance, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I mean, we could we could go on and on and on. Generally speaking, so these guys have set set these idols up in their heart. And then he says this, and when they come to me and they inquire of me, I will answer according to their idol. In other words, he just simply says, I'm going to give them what they're pursuing. I'm going to give them up to their own darkness. Now here's a question. How does someone repent of an idol that they don't even know they have. How does somebody do that? How does someone identify a disordered worship when they're not even aware of the fact that they're worshiping anything? The answer to that is they don't. You see, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he feels great about himself. He has no idea that he's in the same condition as the Ezekiel 14 elders who are inquiring of the Lord. The truth is everyone who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God is right here in Ezekiel 14. Your idol may look different, but it's the same result. You are separated from God and you are propping up and constructing um, other gods in your heart, this stony heart that cannot be pricked by the things of God, that must be replaced by God. And until that replacement happens, nothing else will. And so we could say, we go back to John 3 and Jesus' words, except a man be given a new heart, he cannot see the kingdom, he cannot enter into the kingdom. Those things do not make sense to him. He can't perceive them. And he certainly won't rearrange his life for them. You'll remember this, it's uh, the man came to Jesus, the the lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him, what's the first commandment in Matthew chapter 22? I'm not going to turn there. In Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus says, "This this is the first command, that is, this is the preeminent, the most important, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? And then the second is like unto it that you love your neighbor as yourself. But 
Jesus says, this is the most important thing. This is where you ought to focus. And essentially, we could just say that you love the Lord with your entire inner man. With all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And the question is, how in the world could you ever do that if your heart was full of idols that you were constantly erecting? You can't. You can't. So you can't love God. You can't enter the kingdom. You can't pursue Him. You, you, you can't even be aware of why you might pursue Him until that stony heart is taken out and that new heart is put in. So first one, you're brought from death to life. The second word picture we find in Scripture that we're looking at, none of this is chronological. Second word picture is you're, you're given a new heart. The old stony heart's taken out, the new heart is put in. Let's look in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to stick with the heart. See it referred to in another way. Colossians chapter 2. Um, starting in verse 11, well, starting in verse 10, Colossians 2.10, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, that's Christ, and whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith, the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And I'm going to stop there. I know the sentence doesn't, but I am. You see a couple of these things coming together here. You see the heart. There's a circumcision of the heart. You see there's a quickening that's mentioned here. Um, so in Ephesians 2, you're brought from death to life. In Ezekiel 36, the old heart's taken out. The new heart's put in. In Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 11 through 13, we see that there's a circumcision of the heart. That is, the the he describes it here as the putting away of the body of the sins of the flesh. Circumcision of the heart. It's being referred to here. What is he talking about? Well, the cutting away or the putting away um, the ability for your heart to be cut or pricked, be in such a condition that it can be affected. We said it needed to be made new. But then it also, we know that the Spirit of God, which is who does the work of regeneration, one of His main 
purposes, one of the main works that the Spirit does, according to John chapter 16, verse 8, is He reproves the world of sin. That is, He brings conviction to the heart of the believer. So that as we're interacting with Scripture, you know, you could interact with Scripture all day long. We've talked about this a bunch of times now, particularly with Nicodemus, who knew, had a lot of Scripture stuffed in his head. But we're dependent on the Spirit of God to use the Word of God like a surgical scalpel in our hearts. Okay, and to apply it right where it needs to be applied. To illuminate not only the, 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 the righteous standard, but our unrighteous failure. And to begin to bring conviction in the hearts and in the lives of His people. Okay, now we, we see that in a couple of different couple of different ways um, as far as illustrations of what we're talking about here. Look in Zechariah chapter 10. Um, I'm sorry, not 10. Uh, Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah is right before Malachi. Malachi is right before Matthew, so just go back a couple of uh, books and you'll be there. In Zechariah chapter 12, he's speaking about, um, he's prophesying about a future day in verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem Verse 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and the supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. What is this saying? It's that they're going to be pricked in their hearts. They're going to be affected by what they see, what they've done. Their eyes are going to be opened and their understanding that they're going to have about themselves and about the way they've related to this son, the way that they've related to God. It's going to be piercing to them. It's going to cause mourning. It's going to cause conviction. We see this happening initially in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, whenever Peter preaches, and then it says that they were all pricked in their hearts and they ask, what must we do to be saved? Well, you know, it would be nice if we could induce conviction on command for other people, wouldn't it? I bet you've got several folks you'd love to convict. I bet you've had plans for convicting other people. I bet you've been convicted before and you thought, if I could just get somebody to, look, to listen to this or think about this, they would be convicted too. I, uh, not too long ago, um, I don't know, several months ago now, I guess, I was working through some of the material in that marriage and family class, and there was a book in particular that I was reading that was just very, very convicting. And um, so we were taking David to Columbus, Ohio, for his annual checkup, and that's nine hours. So I thought we got plenty of time here. I'm I'm convicted. I don't need to be the only one. So let me let me let Abby listen to this, and maybe she'll be convicted. And uh, so we were we were driving, and and uh, I pushed play, and and. It was like nothing. I mean, she just nothing. I was sitting there convicted, thinking, "Let's share in this this thing." And 
and facilitate some good discussion. And it didn't work. Uh, there was nothing in particular I was trying to convict her of. I just, it was just a good, but then she took it and, and, uh, about a month later started to re-listen to the material and, and, uh, she said, you know, that's some really convicting stuff. And I thought, that's what I was trying to tell you a month ago, you know? <laughs> well, it's only the Spirit of God that can take the Word of God and prick our hearts with it. So that transformation begins to take place. And that transformation begins with being pierced by the fact that I have sinned against God. Given a new heart, that new heart is circumcised so that we are pricked and the, the, the body of the flesh or the body of sin is being taken away. A cut to the heart here. So brought from death to life. The old heart taken out, the new heart put in. The circumcision of the heart. We could go to some other ones, but we don't have time this morning, so we're going to go to one more. We could go to Titus 3.5, the washing and the renewing. Uh, I preached on that when I was preaching in Titus, so you could go back and listen to that if you want, if you're interested. But the, the last one I'm going to go to is in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Here Paul is, is praying for the Colossian saints. Praying that they would, verse 10, walk worthy of the Lord. Verse 11, that they would be strengthened with all might. And then verse 12, giving thanks. This is part of Paul's prayer. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Essentially, that just means we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, who has made us, who has made us able to be these partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay, here it is, this being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Okay, the deliverance that we've experienced as far as uh, the deliverance from the power and penalty of our sin, right? that Christ did that. Okay? That happened on the cross. But this being translated, number first off, it's not something you do, it's something that's being done to you. Being translated from the power of darkness, we could say the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of God's dear Son, is something that the Spirit does, and it's something that happens. Again, it's just another way of saying being brought from death to life, but it lines up with what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and unless a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom. Unless a man be born again, uh, born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. And, and, and Paul would say here in the letter to the Colossians, Unless a man is translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, he can't do anything. 
Okay? He hasn't even he hasn't even made it uh, to the starting line yet. So we're thinking kingdoms now rather than states of life and death and so forth and so on. And so we also should be thinking about Romans chapter 6, those who are a slave to sin and those who are a slave to God, those who are slaves to righteousness and those who are slaves or who present their members to unrighteousness. Because in a kingdom, there's a king. And, and, and those who are the subjects of that kingdom live under the authority of the king who rules and reigns there. And so it used to be. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 and 3 really flesh this out. used to be that we lived under the power of darkness. That is, the, the only thing you could do was to live within the realm that you existed. And that was darkness. You were a citizen of darkness. So, so we could think about it that way from an earthly standpoint. You're, you're, you're a citizen of the United States. Um. And that's just what you are. Okay, Some of these things will, will, will break down a little bit, but you don't know a whole lot, most of you, probably all of you. You don't know a whole lot about what it means to be a citizen of another country. Because this is where you live. This is where you function. This is what you know. Well, in the same way, as we're born into this world dead in sin with a heart of stone that cannot be pricked by the, by the truths of who God is and what we've done in offense to Him, we cannot know anything about the King and the kingdom blessings while we're living under the power of darkness and under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. And nothing can change until you passively are translated. That is, it's a metamorphosis kind of a thing. It's where you are taken and, and placed into this new kingdom. It's the kingdom we talked about last week that Daniel prophesies about, where the Son of Man is ruling and He's been given dominion and He's been given power and there's a kingdom that will not fail but you don't have access to that kingdom just by you figuring out how to get in. Matter of fact, according to Romans 3, you're not even interested in a kingdom like that. You're busy building your own kingdom, treasuring your own things. But this kingdom illustration here is just another way of talking about regeneration. We can, we can see that at least see it spoken of that way in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, this kingdom, um, the kingdom that Daniel was talking about, the kingdom that Paul's talking about here, the kingdom of God, this is an invisible reality. Now there's there's... There's a visible manifestation whenever God's people are brought into it. But this is an invisible reality. Something that's going on in the inner man. It's something that's going on in your heart and it's something that's going on through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so as we think about these four pictures of regeneration, especially in relation to John chapter 3, as Nicodemus comes and he's a man who knows a lot about God, but he doesn't know God. Um, He's a man who's done a whole lot to clean the outside of the cup, but there's never been that washing that needed to take place through the power of the Holy Spirit, devoted his life to holiness, devoted his life to uh, politically making sure the nation was holy, and yet he was in the kingdom of darkness. He knew nothing about God's kingdom. Why? Because brothers and sisters, in our best state, in and of ourselves, we're dead. We're separated from God. We have no understanding about who God is, what God's like, and what we're like. So in John chapter 3, as we continue on, Jesus is laying the foundation to then say, just as Moses had to raise that brass serpent in the wilderness so that who all who look to him would live, the Son of Man will be raised up, and all who look to him and believe on him will find life. You see, the, the doctrine of, of Holy Spirit, immediate Holy Spirit regeneration is not a doctrine, at least on the front end, it's not a doctrine that's supposed to leave us feeling warm and fuzzy. It's a doctrine that's supposed to expose the fact that you are helpless. You can't do anything. You're undone. And were it not for, and is it, if it weren't for a, a, a sovereign, loving, God, who has made provision for sinners in Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You have no hope. And so you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be made alive. You must be given a new heart. You must have your heart circumcised. And you must be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. These are must. So may God open our hearts and our eyes to receive these things. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for Your Word. And then, Lord, we thank You for eyes to see, for ears to hear, for, for the Spirit of Your Son that You have made to live in the hearts of Your people so that we do come to You as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, as a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices Uh, that are pleasing to You through Christ. Father, we pray that You would, uh, through the power of Your Spirit, uh, continue to bring uh, dead people to life in our midst. Lord, we pray for our children. We pray for anyone here who does not yet know You, who hasn't been given eyes to see, who hasn't been given spiritual understanding. Lord, we pray in Your mercy that You would bring life and that it would be to Your glory and Your honor. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.